How many of you guys believe that God is good? All right, God is good. And, and, and God is so good, sometimes it's hard for us to comprehend how good God is, right? I mean, God is good. Here's a question I have for us today to wrestle with. Would God ever use fear as a motivation for us to do good? As good as God is, are there times when God uses fear to motivate us to do good? I, I want to wrestle with a scripture, a couple scriptures today that are really challenging sometimes as we look at them. And so we're going to do something. We're going to just wrestle with these scriptures. And they're in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So it's saying, if you've received the truth and you go on sinning deliberately, there's no longer a sacrifice available for sins. How many of you guys have that scripture up on your refrigerator? Like, that's your life verse right there? Like, I'm just going to make that my life verse, right? <laughs> it's a difficult scripture. But I can tell you this, that fear is a powerful motivator, right? I mean, fear is a powerful motivator. How many of you guys have ever tried uh, what you would consider a fad diet of any sort, uh, any kind? Okay, I've got my hands up. I've tried like all of them, right? And, uh, but I was, it was interesting this past week, and maybe some of you guys saw this, or maybe they're just targeting me for some reason, but I was on Facebook, and I was scrolling through Facebook, and I had a sponsored ad, and I don't know what this says about me, that this ad was brought to me, but it was sponsoring a, a new diet, and they called this the doomsday diet. And it's like 300 prepackaged freeze-dried meals to last you a month when doomsday hits, when the end comes, okay? When, when stuff hits the fan, okay? That's what it's saying, right? And it's like, I mean, it's, so I'm like, okay, I got to click on this, you know? And so I'm going to see the comments on this. And so I start scrolling through the comments, and it's, it's hilarious. Some people are, you know, the end of the world's coming. Is it gluten-free? Seriously, people. <laughs> this is what they're asking. But this one was just, I mean, just a basic comment. And he's like, I, I, I've ordered mine. I'm ready for disaster to come, you know. And it was like, he's excited about the end, you know, and, and excited about all of this type, type of stuff. Now, I believe in being prepared, okay? It's a good thing to be prepared. I believe in being prepared. That's not a bad thing. And if you've got 300 pre, freeze-dried meals in your basement, that's great. You know, go for it. Uh, but I, there's a difference between being prepared for disaster and being giddy about disaster coming, Right? And I believe that we have a problem in the American church. I, mean, I believe we have lots of problems. But I believe the, the problem I want to address is this, that too many of us have a mindset of fear. We have a mindset of fear that we, we have fear towards the world. We have fear towards the future. We have fear towards people who aren't like us. Fear is a powerful motivator, though, right? Fear is a powerful motivator. And when we looked at that scripture, it seems as if 
God is wanting to use fear to motivate us to do good. Let me read it again. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And so there seems to be this motivation of fear. If we don't do this, then we're out and there's fear involved and the fury of fire. Now, again, I think we have a problem with fear. And, and here's the problem. The problem for us as Christians is when we take fear and we assign it to a godly purpose. When we try to attach fear to, to somehow further something of God in this world or in our life. And I see it all the time. I, I hear it on the news. How many of you guys, you know, you, you don't have to watch the news too long then to realize that fear is a motivator, right? You, you don't have, listen, you don't have to scroll through your Facebook very long to realize how many people are motivated and peddling fear. And I'm not talking about just politicians. I'm not talking about just the media. I'm talking about us. We bought into this mindset of fear and we begin to push that out. You can see popular Christians, prominent Christians using this. It's, it's all over the place. And, and so when we try to use fear as a vehicle for God's purposes, something is off. Something's wrong. This can happen, and how's this, this happens in the area, we're talking about revival, this happens in the area of revival too. When we start to look at revival coming in our lives, and somehow fear has now become the motivator for that revival, something is off. Something's off. This can happen in our personal relationship with God. If we find that fear has been the motivator in some way, then something is off. Now, when I was, uh, and here's really the point of the message, that revival comes through love, not fear. Revival comes through love, not fear. Again, we're going to deal with this difficult passage uh, as we walk through this, but just a personal example. When I was a kid, I used to be afraid of the rapture. How many of you guys know what the rapture is? Okay, so the rapture, you know, Jesus is coming, we get caught up in the air, and those people who are right with God will be taken, and those who are not will be left. And, and so that, that's, I, I used to be, you know, there are many different thoughts about that. Some people, you know, how that's going to happen, if it's going to happen, all that. I'm not into that. I'm just telling you, as a kid, I was, I was scared that somehow I wasn't living right enough with God, and if the rapture happened, that there's a possibility that I would be left behind. There's whole books written on it. There's whole movies on it. And so as a kid, sometimes it'd be a scary thing when you'd walk into the house and no one's there, and you'd think, I missed it, right? <laughs> I missed it. And you're like looking around, and you don't want to act like you missed it, because it could be that, you know, you just walked into an empty house but, and people could actually be there. But as you're growing up in this environment as a kid, the most fun thing that you could do is to stage the rapture for your brothers. <laughs> so from time to time, we might do that. If the parents were out of the house, we'd hide, we'd watch somebody's reaction. That they'd, They would try to act all cool for a while and then they'd get concerned, you know. And, and so I think it probably happened to all of us at some point. But, you know, you're just, you know, praying in the spirit underneath it all. Just like, okay, God, give me one more chance, you know. And, and so I was afraid that if Jesus showed up and if I hadn't repented or confessed the last sin that I had done, that somehow 
that would be enough for me to miss it, that I wasn't exactly right with God. I don't know where that came from. Some of us, though, even though we wouldn't believe that, there's something about the way that we interact with God that says the same thing. And then if we don't believe that, like, well, no, it wouldn't just take one sin, then I would start to wonder, how many sins in a row, unconfessed, would it take before Jesus would leave me behind? Then I thought, well, no, Jesus forgives a lot of sins, so what kind of sin would it take for me to do before I would be left behind? And I started to get motivated out of this motivation of fear. Can I just tell you it doesn't work that way, by the way? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. But, but we would read these scriptures like Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. And that was always scary to me, like a thief in the night. Like, could we not use a better analogy than that? I mean, like as a kid, you're like, really? You're like, everything was scary. And then they came out with movies about it. How many of you guys remember that movie, The Thief in the Night? You guys remember that movie? Man, I was scared of that movie. As a Christian, we never were allowed to watch like horror movies. This is the closest thing to a Christian horror movie that was ever made. First of all, it was made in 1972. That's one strike against it. It was just a horrible movie. Uh, but it was like all about being left behind. And if you get left behind, and you, they're trying to get you to take the mark of the beast. And if you don't take it, they're going to be chasing you and trying to cut your head off. That's the movie right there. I spoiled the ending. Sorry. That's the movie. And so one night, we all went to a friend's house. It was, it was, it was uh, me and my brother, some of my brothers went over to a friend's house a few blocks away from our house. And so we went. And I don't even know if we were allowed to watch this movie. But we went and we watched this movie. We were rebellious. I mean, it was just awesome. So we went and we watched this movie. We were probably 10. I was probably 10. I don't know how old I was. I was a young kid. And so we get done watching the movie. And we are just terrified. We're just afraid that maybe the rapture has happened while we were watching the movie and we've been left behind and we don't want the mark of the beast, so we better start running or something. We, but So there we were, we were leaving the friend's house and it was dark out, it was pitch black out. And so we all start walking home after watching this movie. And pretty soon, I don't remember which one of us was, but one of us just couldn't take it and just started running as fast as they could towards home. The rest of us are like, ah, we just had to get home. So we're running home as as fast as we can, because we were terrified that somehow we would be left behind. And, and so just to give you a small taste of what I went through for your viewing pleasure, let's see a small clip of this movie. Reports keep coming in from all over the globe, confirming it as true. The event seems to have taken place at the same time all over the world, just about 25 minutes ago. Life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the units, we've got her safe in our arms. See what I'm saying, guys? This is cinematic gold right there. I mean, it is. We were terrified of that. <laughs> and, yeah, some of you guys are like, what are you talking about? I'm just telling you, you know, it's, it's bad. And 
So why does that have to do with what we're talking about? Because fear is a powerful motivator. So fear can motivate people to do things. And I believe it's A.W. Tozer who said, what you think about God, something to this effect, what you think about God or what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? I can tell you as a kid, I began to be afraid. Back to our scripture, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Because of things like this. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So what do we do with this scripture? What do we do with this scripture? See, here's what happens. Satan will use things like this to mess with the mind and to, to mess with believers all the time. He will use, he'll, he'll leverage this to get you to beat yourself up if you aren't living perfectly right. And he'll do all this type of stuff. Now, because, and I believe it's because this scripture is misunderstood. And let me just say it this way. If you come across a scripture that seems to contradict the basic overall message of scripture, chances are you're reading it wrong. Because there's some scriptures that pop out like that, that seem like, ah, how does this jive with the rest? Chances are you're reading it wrong. So, so we, we've got to understand how to read this scripture. We've got to dig just a little bit deeper. Because if what it's saying is that if you willfully sin after you know what to do is right, if that's what it's saying, just on the surface reading of it, then the prodigal son would never have come back home because he had known the truth, he walked away from the truth, and he came back home to the father's house. Seems to be at odds with the basic story that Jesus told us as to how the father works and how grace works. So what does this mean? Well, we have to understand, and, and when you're looking at a scripture and trying to understand what it means, sometimes you have to look at what it does not mean first. And sometimes that'll lead you to what it does mean. So let's look at some things that it cannot mean. I believe it can't mean these things because of what the overall message of scripture is. It can't mean that the only sins, that, that only sins done before you're saved can be forgiven. It can't mean that because we know of other places in Scripture. I don't have time to go into that. But I'm telling you, it cannot mean that just for the reason I just mentioned. It can't mean that, okay, before you're saved, you did sin. Now, after you get saved, you have to live a perfect, sinless life. You can never sin at all or you're going back to a hellish state and you're going to hell now. It can't mean that because it contradicts the overall message of Scripture. It can't mean that once you've heard the gospel and the truth has been presented to you, you only get one chance to hear it. And if you rejected it at that time, it's over. It can't mean that if you heard the gospel and you, you didn't take that one chance. Because how many of you guys, you heard the gospel and you heard the gospel and you heard the gospel and then finally you tapped out and said, yes, Jesus, be my savior, right? I was at a pastor's, con a pastor's conference uh, a week ago. And at a pastor's conference, only senior pastors at this conference the guy who got up in front of the, the, all the pastors, he gave a salvation altar call for the pastors. 
Fortunately, no one responded because I believe everyone was saved there. But the reason he did that is because there have been stories of people who have pastored churches that then realized they never gave their heart to Jesus. They had just grown up in a religious mindset and gone through religious motions. And finally, they came to this realization, I have never surrendered my heart to Jesus. And they gave their heart to Jesus, as crazy as that sounds. So it can't mean that you only get one shot to hear the gospel, and if you didn't respond, that's it. There's no longer a sacrifice. It can't mean that either. And it doesn't mean that if a Christian sins, that's it. You blew it. You did one sin, and you continue to sin. Even if you did the same, it can't mean that because we have 1 John 1 that talks about how, yes, it, we, our, our goal is to not sin, but if we do, we have an advocate with the Father. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So as we begin to look at what it can't mean, we start to become led into the idea of what it might mean. So what does it mean? Well, we have to keep reading. And as we begin to keep reading, it seems like it starts to get worse. (laughs) But let's read it anyway. In verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he, sanctified, he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Seems like it's getting worse, right? But there's some keys in there. First of all, it talks about the law of Moses. And see, in the law of Moses, if you sinned, You offered a sacrifice. In fact, there was a yearly sacrifice and there were multiple sacrifices and different types of sacrifices for the different types of sins that you would commit. And so if you sinned and you offered a sacrifice and you sinned again, you'd offer another sacrifice. And if you didn't catch any of those, they would offer an overall sacrifice for everybody to catch any of the the sins that were not offered in a sacrifice, right? They were just trying to cover all the bases. And so if you sinned, they would continue to offer sacrifices for that sin. Not so in Jesus Christ. How many of you guys know that Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God, who was offered once and for all? He, got, he, can't, he said on the cross, it is finished. You look all through Scripture, the overall arching message of the New Testament is that there was one sacrifice offered once and for all in Jesus Christ. And in that, he fulfilled all the requirements of all the other sacrifices so that if we would put our faith in Jesus Christ into that one sacrifice, we wouldn't have to continue to offer sacrifices for every single sin we commit. Is anybody following me today? So this is what's happening. Now, when it talks about the law of Moses and and two or three witnesses, this was talking about people who knew the truth, but deliberately walked away and turned their back completely on God. It's talking about someone who walked away from the faith. Now, we know of people, even just recently in the news, a prominent Christian who had years and years been walking with God, but just recently said, I'm no longer a Christian. This is what this is talking about. It's saying this, that there is no, if you sinned under the old covenant, there would be a sacrifice offered again. But if you sin and you walk away from God and you say, that's it, there's no other sacrifice for you other than Jesus Christ. It's the option. He is the option. 
There's one sacrifice forever. There's no more sacrifice coming. In other words, if you don't go through the path of Jesus, there are no other sacrifices. There's no other way to get there. If you try to get there outside of Jesus, all you can expect is punishment and wrath. And you have you've basically spit on the spirit of grace and said, I do not believe that that is the way for me to have my sins forgiven. It's Jesus or nothing. It's, it's Jesus or punishment. Those are the options. And here's the problem for many of us. And this is what I believe this scripture is. It, it, it needs to produce in us righteous living. But here's how. Because the problem is when we failed, the temptation for most of us, even as believers, even who know that Jesus is a sacrifice, even those of us who believe in the grace of God, here's the temptation. When we fail, we try to do something to offer our own sacrifice for our sins. We try to earn our way back to God some way. What this is saying is there's no other sacrifice except in Jesus Christ. You cannot, you cannot obtain salvation or grace in any other sacrifice. It happened once and it happened for all. You, Jesus doesn't have to go back up on the cross to sacrifice again for every sin that you commit. It happened once and it happened, it happened one time. It is finished. The only one is Jesus. This is not an invitation to be careless with sin. This is an invitation to know Jesus and salvation better. This is an invitation for us to draw near to Jesus. That you, how many of you guys know the more you know Jesus, hopefully the more you start to look like him, right? That's what this is talking about. Revival comes through love, not fear. And I'm telling you, personal revival, if you want to get close to God, if you want God to stir some things up in you, personal revival in your life is going to come through the love of God, not being afraid of God. And this is, this is very important. So why is this important? Because revival will not come without a proper understanding of who God is. So who is God? Point number one is this, God is love, not fear. Too many of us have forgotten that God is love. Nowhere in scripture does it say God is fear. God is love, not fear. And can I just say it this way? God is not mad at you. In fact, let's all say that together. Say, God is not mad at me. Now let's say it like we mean it. Say, God is not mad at me. No matter what you've done this week, God is not mad at you. You say, so, and, and for some of you guys, the religious spirits are just kind of trying to figure out what to do now, right? <laughs> because you know you failed in some way, possibly. And because Satan is trying to plant an idea and to scheme, in co- listen to this, in cooperation with you as to how to earn your way back to God. Because he knows if he can get you to do that, you have bypassed the sacrifice of Jesus. And you are operating outside of the grace of God, trying to earn your way back to him. But God is not mad at you. You realize our kids are even learning this. So whether you want them to or not, they're learning this. Uh, God's in a good mood. <laughs> God's not mad at me. He's in a good mood. First John chapter 4, verse 16 So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God. Did you catch that? If you you want to abide in God, you have to live in love. 
Love is where you live if you want to abide in God. And God abides in him. By this, love is perfected in us. So if we, we could say it this way, if we want God perfected in us so, so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Now, here's your, this ought to be your refrigerator verse if you've got one, okay? For there is no fear in love. There, no fear in love. God is love. There is no fear in God. There's no fear in love. Why? But perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. When you are in God or in love, there is no fear. There is no punishment. Can I just say it this way? There is no punishment for you after you're in Christ. Jesus took my punishment. So whatever you want to call the fear of God, because somebody, yeah, I, I had questions after last night, like, well, what about, you know, the, the you know, fear of the Lord is beginning wisdom. What about, you know, when, when uh, people would show up and they, everybody had fear. Listen, many times people responded out of fear when God did something or they encountered God. How many times did the angel or did God say, do not fear? Listen, whatever the fear of God is, we could call it a reverential fear or an awe of God or a respect, whatever you want to call that. I can tell you what the fear of God is not. The fear of God is not fear of punishment from God when you are in Christ. That's what this scripture says right here. If you have any fear of God, it can't be fear of punishment from God when you're in Christ. Man, guys, I'm preaching pretty good, right? Okay. <laughs> Just hope you're getting it. The fear of God... It is not fear of punishment because Jesus took my punishment. Guys, I'm telling you the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is that you deserve punishment. The good news is that you, you, you could try to earn your way back to God, but you would, you'd fail. But the good news is you don't have to. There's no fear of this hammer coming down you know, from God that he's going to Come, there's no condemnation in Christ. Listen, if there's any good work that you could accomplish that would somehow hold back the wrath of God, then you've become your own savior. If there's any good work, or if there's any not sinning that you could hang on to long enough that would somehow stave off the wrath of God or punishment, you have become your own savior. That is not the gospel. Jesus paid the price. Jesus is the sacrifice. There's no other sacrifice for sins except for Jesus Christ. There no longer is any other way. You can't offer a sacrifice. You can't take some pigeons or turtle doves or some bowl. Or you can't do that anymore. You can't read your Bible enough. You can't do any of that stuff anymore. There's only one way. It's Jesus. And that's good news. Revival comes through love, not fear. Point number two is this. You get to decide then what you focus on. Because what you focus on is important. Are you going to focus on fear in your relationship with God? Fear towards the world? Fear towards others? Or are you going to focus on love in your relationship with God? Love towards others? Love towards the world? You get to decide what you focus on. To help us give us an illustration of this, how simple it is, let's watch this video. You know, what you focus on in life is what you get. This is a little Polaroid camera. It takes the cutest little pictures. Now look, I'm gonna get whatever I focus on. I can get this pretty lady right down here in the blue. Oops, there it is. 
Now, this has to develop, you know, like most things we focus on. You focus on trouble long enough, it will develop into more trouble. Amen? Uh, but if we focus on, let's see, who else can I, let, let's focus on Dave, because he sure is good looking. Amen. <laughs> Woo! That Dave, I'll tell you. Man, there you go. Look, isn't that cute? 50 bucks. You can just take pictures everywhere you go. I know, you got your selfies, but I don't do good with those. So, it's just an example. You're going to get what you focus on. What you focus on gets larger and larger in your life. It grows, and it can grow to the point where it's just like totally out of balance. It's like, like if you look at what's wrong with your life, you can actually get to the point where you just hate your life. And you think that you've got the worst life ever when really somebody else might look at your life and they might actually wish they had your life because they're seeing the stuff that you quit looking at a long time ago because you're so busy looking at all the stuff you don't like, you've forgotten what you do like. You might marry somebody and you might get so focused on what you don't like that you forgot what you liked about them that caused you to want to marry them to start with. Come on now. I'm preaching better than you're acting. That's awesome. You can decide what you focus on. So the question is, where is your focus? Even as we're looking at, we talk about the thief in the night and the end times and, you know, the end of doomsday. As you begin to look at this world, how many of you guys know it's, it's not hard to start thinking that things are getting pretty bad in the world, right? We don't have to look at the news too long to realize that. And and we can even choose biblically how we respond to that. There's a couple of different ways to look at this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5 says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying his power, avoid such people. How many of you guys are thinking, man, it's easy to start looking at the world and start thinking it's getting bad, it's getting bad, it's getting bad. Now here's the problem for some of us believers it's one thing to be prepared. It's another thing to be giddy about it. Like, I just can't wait. Look at how bad things are getting. Is that the way we should be thinking about it? See, there's this tension in our view of the last days. Do we kind of hope for it to get really bad before the end? Because there's another way to look at the last days. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters are going to prophesy. People are going to see dreams. People are going to see visions. How about when we start to pray as on earth as it is in heaven, that we'd be franchises of heaven, that everywhere that we walk, how do you guys know that we are called to be the light that shines bright, not hidden under a bushel, and whenever there's darkness and you light a light, darkness has to flee. And the more light that comes into the world, the less darkness that there is. How do you guys know that we're supposed to be a city on a hill that shines bright, and if it is on earth as it is in heaven, that we ought to see things start to increase with God's spirit being poured out. How do you guys want to focus on that and love God for that and believe God for that. Too many times, though, we are so focused on the news that we forget about the good news. 
How many times are we caught up in the latest thing that, that politicians or the media tells us to get worked up over instead of th- reading our Bible and, tell, and, and seeing what Jesus says we ought to get worked up over? How about we be peddlers of that instead of peddlers of fear? How about we push that agenda, Jesus' agenda? Amen? So we gotta, we got to allow God's heart to be our heart on earth as it is heaven because you can focus on the flesh or you can focus on the spirit. You can focus on dark, or you can focus on light. You can focus on the world going to hell, or you can focus on heaven come to earth. What are you going to focus on? See, when I was little, I used to think about that thief in the night. I thought, that's scary. That's the way we're supposed to think about the future. And many of us have had that lodged in our thinking, thief in the night, thief in the night. As believers, we're supposed to think about a thief in the night, a thief in the night. That's how we're supposed to think about the end times. And that's how I thought. Now, let's look at this scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware, and here it is, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, all, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So growing up, that's how I thought all the time. It's going to be bad. Thief in the night. Thief in the night. Thief in the night. And then one day I kept reading. It's good to keep reading. Because it says, but... Talking to believers, you are not children of darkness. You're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Wait a minute. So many of us are stuck in this thief in the night mindset. And the scripture clearly says if we would just keep reading, you are not supposed to think that way. You are not supposed to think of it surprising you like a thief. For for. You are children of light. We're not children of darkness. You're children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. Did did we catch that? We're supposed to have love. Put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation, not doomsday diet, not doom and gloom, but the hope of salvation, that God is coming and that the light is going to shine brighter and brighter and brighter, and more people are going to get saved, and more people are going to come to faith. Amen? That's what we're supposed to be thinking like. For God has not destined us for wrath. Let that be a refrigerator verse for you right there. God has not destined us for wrath. We are not fearing the wrath of God. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. Revival comes through love, not fear. Why is it important for us to decide what we focus on? Point number three, last point. Your focus determines your fruit. Your focus determines your fruit. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 and 6 For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Watch this. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. In other words, what you set your focus on brings a certain result. 
If your focus is all on fear and how bad the world is and how fear of others and fear of what the media tells us to be afraid of and fear of what politicians tell us to be afraid of and fear of what your friends tell you to be afraid of and fear of God in the sense that punishment is coming, the hammer's coming. If that's what you set your mind on, the things of this world or the things of the flesh or the things that are not of the spirit according to scripture, guess what you're going to get? That path leads to death. That path is not going to be fruitful. In other words, the seeds that are planted in your heart on that path are not going to live. They are not going to survive. It's a fruitless effort. But if you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, guess what you get as a result? Life and peace. Anybody want some life and peace? (laughs) Then set your mind on things above, not things of this earth. Set your mind on the Spirit. You know, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Amen? It's the goodness of God. You say, well, what about godly sorrow? Isn't godly sorrow in there? Yeah, godly sorrow is. But can I tell you, godly sorrow and punishment from God are not the same thing. Godly sorrow and being afraid of God's hammer coming down every time I sin is not the same thing. God is a God of love not fear. Does this mean that people in past revivals, I mean, and and just in our life, is there ever a time when we're going to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit so strong that it moves us in such a deep way? No, absolutely. In past revivals, this happened all the time. People were moved with such an urgency to run to God and to run away from sin that it looked like an, an urgent, just running to God, like it captivated all of them. But I can tell you this, fear of God is not going to last in that sense, being afraid of God. That may motivate you to temporary behavior modification, but how many of you guys have kids? Have you guys, your kids, you can get them to obey you out of fear of dad or fear of mom for so long, but when they become teenagers, if that's how you've motivated them, when they find a little bit of freedom, they're gone. God is not just trying to modify your behavior. He's trying to win your heart. And he doesn't win your heart through fear. He wins it through love. And I want my kids to obey me, not out of fear of me, but because they love and honor and respect. And I can tell you that's what God wants. So there are times when we're moved, but we're not running to God because we're afraid of God. We're running to God because we know that God's help is there in time of need that his grace is there in time of need, that his love is there. We're running to a loving father, not because we're afraid that if we don't, somehow we're gonna be kicked out. I'm gonna have the worship team come up at this point. And as they do, I'm gonna tell you one last story. Because I think it's so important for us even to teach our kids, as they're being taught back there right now, to teach our kids how to look at God and what a proper view of God is. Because what we think about God is the most important thing about us. How many of you guys have heard of a guy named Daniel in Scripture? Anybody heard of Daniel? How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? You've heard of those guys? They, I mean, uh, these guys were in a, a godly country, and they were taken out and they were put into Babylon, an ungodly country, and, and they were forced and tried to pressure into living ways that were ungodly. And yet, how many of you guys know their testimony is that they stood for what was right? 
When they were tried to be forced to eat the king's food, it was not their conviction to do so, and they stood up for what was right. I mean, you guys know that, that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were, they were told they had to bow down to a false god, they stood strong, and they were not afraid, right? They stood strong. Even, the, even though they were thrown into the fiery furnace, they said, you know what? If God saves us, or we believe God will save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not afraid. Daniel prayed to his God because he was not afraid of the consequences because he, he had no fear because he knew love. He knew God. And he was thrown into the lion's den and God saved him. And we think about all those stories of standing up for what was right. What would cause people to be unafraid like that? I believe they were unafraid. They had no fear because they knew love. And one of the ways that I know that, if you look back at the timeline, there was another guy in history. He was a king. He became a king at eight years old. His name was Josiah. And as he began to grow up, he began to start one of the major revivals in Israel's history. One of the major revivals. And this was transforming everything. And as you look at the timeline towards the end of Josiah's revival, these guys were born. Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They were at the tail end of Josiah's revival just a few short years before they were taken out. Something got deposited in these people at a very young age that gave them the strength to not be afraid and to stand in the love of God. I believe it's so important for us to understand who God is because if we understand who God is, then we can walk in God's love. Do you realize that God has so many things planned for us, laid out for us, that many of us might walk right on by because we're operating out of fear rather than love? Would you guys stand up with me? Revival can happen when we stop being peddlers of fear and we start being carriers of love. I'm not talking about love without wisdom. I'm not talking about love without truth. But I am talking about love without fear because that's what scripture teaches. So I'm gonna pray over us before we worship one more time. God, I pray right now for a supernatural deposit of love. Lord, help us to be carriers of your love. Lord, I pray for mindsets to shift today. I pray for, for people right now who've been bound and, and, and caught up in this idea that every time we sin, that somehow we have to earn our way back to you. Lord, I pray that freedom would come today, that you'd set hearts free. We're not afraid of sinning. We are free to not sin because of your grace. Lord, I pray for that revelation in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship one more time.